Welcome to Centering, the Asian American Christian Podcast. I'm Eleanor Balon. And I'm Jay Katanis. This season, we're exploring Filipino American Christian experiences from a variety of perspectives. Thanks for joining us. Hello, welcome everyone to Centering the Asian American Christian Podcast. You are listening to a special season focused on Filipino American communities, identity, ministry, scholarship, and beyond. My name is Eleanor, and I am one of your co-hosts for this season. I serve as the Director of Formation with Fuller's Filipino American Ministry Initiative, where I help Filipinos and Filipino Americans consider their formation and growth from spiritual to psychological to leadership areas and more. My co-host for this season is Dr. Jay. Please introduce yourself, Jay. Hello, everybody. I am Gabriel J. Katanis. You can call me Jay, except if you're one of our students, then it's Dr. Jay. But I am the director of the Filipino American Ministry Initiative, aka FAMI, giving overall guidance to our initiative, but working alongside Eleanor and also for this special season of the Centering Podcast. Really happy to be with you today. So Eleanor, I'm really excited about today's Mm -hmm. episode, this episode, because we get to have with us a very special person, Dr. Robin Magalit Rodriguez. And Mm -hmm. I'm gonna read her bio and then say a little bit about her, but ask her to perhaps say more about herself. Robin Magalit Rodriguez is professor of Asian American studies at UC Davis. She was the first Pinay, that's the first Filipina born in the US to serve as chair in the Asian American studies department in the department's 50 year history. She is also the founding director of the Bulosan Center for Filipino Studies and is a widely published and award-winning scholar. She's written on global migration with a particular focus on overseas Filipino workers or OFWs. And she has also written on Asian American, including Filipino American issues, highlighting Asian American activism in recent years. So we're excited to hear about all those things, but she was also awarded the Excellence in Mentoring Award by the Association for Asian American Studies. So epic. And that was in 2021, yes. Um, I am holding this, my copy of one of her books, Migrants <laughs> for Export, that was released in 2010. And I first came across Dr. Rodriguez's work when I was in grad school, uh, not even yet into my dissertation, which eventually would take up some similar themes that she's written on a far uh, higher and greater level. And, you know, I think we were talking about fangirling and fanboying before we recorded. And I am really excited because I don't know, Dr. Rodriguez, if you hear this often, but I am a full-time pastor of a church in Chicago. And I also am in academics and teach at the graduate level. But, you know, as a pastor leading in spiritual community, I got to say that I am so excited about the work that you've written and are continuing to do. And I have kind of been quietly following you and your work for the last five, six years. So I don't know if you ever noticed me. I don't say much, but in as many webinars as possible or as many Zoom <laughs> events as possible, I'm, I'm there. 
I'm this, you know, oh, I'm not, that. I'm not on the West Coast. I'm not one of your students, but in a way I am. And so I want to just stop talking right now, but allow you, if you would please introduce yourself a little bit more, you tell us about your, your family, you know, your nickname, which um, for those who don't know is the Mad Professora. And also please, please tell us about where you are right now, because these are things that we are just dying to hear more about. Sure, sure. Oh, gosh, thank you so much for that, Jay. Uh, oh, no, and I should say doctor, of course, but <laughs> we're in, this is family. So, yeah, so please actually call me Robin also while we're on this call. Um, but, uh, you know, I think the short bio that you, you read is, is all true. You know, I've done this work as a scholar, and I'm very committed as a mentor, I think it's important to also just state how much my social justice activism has always been at the center of my research and teaching. And that ultimately is deeply rooted uh, both in my family history and really also in my faith. The family history piece is fun because my middle name, for those who can understand Filipino, actually means to be angry. Robin Magalit Rodriguez. Awesome. I love it. I love it. I'm always, I love, always yes. uh, making sure people spell it out. And it's it's great because it's actually a made-up name. So my uh, I get my name from my mother. Magalit was her maiden name. And she is from uh, Panay Island, specifically Aklan, the province of Aklan. And the story goes that uh, my great-great-grandfather, who was named Damaso de los Reyes, and again, if you don't understand Spanish, you know that, that uh, his last name translates into of the kings. Well, Damaso de los Reyes had been recruited by Cateponeros, Tagalogs, who had come down to uh, the Sasayas region, recruiting revolutionaries to join in the anti-colonial struggle against the Spanish. And the story goes that he could have been, would have been one of the 19 martyrs of Aklan. There is a statue of the 19 martyrs of Aklan in uh, Calibo, Aklan. But he would have been martyr number 20 if he had not quickly changed his name when he was being interrogated and adopted uh, Magalit as a last name, which doesn't really have a meaning in the local language, mm-hmm. but you know he knew its meaning because of his interactions with the Katipun, and that's one story. There's other stories like how they say wow. actually one of the interrogators, the chief interrogators, actually a childhood friend that my great great grandfather had saved from drowning in the river. There's another story where he basically like wow. ran out the window and onto his horse and on to day. But whatever the story, <laughs> it is true that it is a made up name. It is yes. true that uh, if you have Magalit in your name or you're related to Magalit, you are definitely related to me. There is nobody else with that name in the country. Wow. And we are proud um, that he lived to not just tell the tale, but to produce several generations of people who have really been committed to the work of justice. Actually, I have an uncle who wrote during the period of martial law in the Philippines, 
an important tome. It was uh, his mm-hmm. name was Isabella mm-hmm. Magalit. It was a piece called Yes, yes Doctor Bell Magalit. Um, Can a Christian be a nationalist? So um, there are lots of ways that my family has tried to advance social justice on both sides of the Pacific. That's another piece of my my biography that's uh, really important. I always took that very seriously as a young girl. I felt that it was a responsibility to take on um, that work. So that's sort of part Mm -hmm. of my story. And I think, you know, I'd always been very active in the church as a young child. um, And I'd always really, up through high school, and, you know, had really, really... um, uh, so much of how I moved in the world and continue to move in the world has been inspired by Christ's teachings. And, you know, that was a really crucial part of who, who, you know, was, is a crucial part of who I am and really motivated a lot of my social justice activism. I do have to say, you know, I took a bit of a detour, um, kind of having some struggles with kind of the entangled histories of colonialism and Christianity and have struggled with that, but I found my way back in the way that makes sense to me recently, and and that has to do in large part from the passing of my my son, Amado, who died actually in the Philippines Hmm. uh, in 2020 while serving um, Indigenous people. He was working actually with a church-based group there in the island of Mindoro. Um, You know, I think he too took our family history very seriously, uh, really uh, aspired to live a life of meaning and a life of service. And that's what it meant for him. So all of that really, I think, um, is an important yeah. part of my story and where I am now, which, you know, I was sharing a little bit. I'm in a farm yeah. now, or this is my pivot. I'm actually retiring early from UC Davis, only to continue my work as a teacher and educator um, here on the farm. I am in spiritual conversation with a dear friend of mine who actually had been training to be a Jesuit, decided to leave that, but wow. has continued to do a lot of uh, uh, work of ministry. And uh, we started these conversations and, you know, he said, you know, that he, that land is sacred, you know, and that there's an, an important yes. um, connection. And then he kind of felt like, you know, that made sense, that part of my Kind of reconnecting to my faith has been mediated, you know, by this desire uh, for a connection to land. So that's my kind of background, wow. I guess. Uh, I have lots of little stories to tell, but that's sort of, I think, an important piece of uh, who I am that I wanted to say. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, okay, this is not expected, but I am very close to the Magalit family here in Chicago. What? Stop. Okay. okay, explain yeah. yourself. <laughs> yeah, so, but you know, this is a good connection oh because I had noticed your, your, your name and I grew up with, it could be your uncle Val. Oh my uh, God, yes, so you know Joy? I know that the, the children and they were part of my uncle's church here in Chicago for until my uncle retired. And I, you know, participated in the funeral for Tito Val, but grew up with him playing volleyball, attending church, playing ping pong. Um, and it had kind of come full circle for me 
because I'm also now teaching for the seminary, which was in part founded and led by your uncle, Dr. Bell Magalit, who for some of our listeners who don't know, you need to know, um, but there was a real important turning point in evangelical involvement in the people power revolution where many fundamentalists didn't want to get involved because of the interpretation of Romans 13 that they had inherited. But, you know, when Dr. Bell Magalit and others, Dr. Melba Magai, some of these kind of pioneering folks said, well, actually to follow Jesus would mean to resist this oppression and to stand alongside our, you know, other siblings, whether Catholic or otherwise on the front lines, um, facing the tanks and these soldiers. It's just Dr. Bell Magalit's role in that is so pivotal. And the the family in Chicago, including, you know, um, Tita Fey, who's the wife of the late Val Magalit, uh, we're very, very close family friends and are my parents and the, the Magalits here in Chicago all came from Central Philippine University on in Iloilo City on Panay Island, which you just mentioned. So we're Ilongo, you're Ilonga, or, uh, you know, maybe, I, I don't know if you, your family speaks Kinaraya or Warai, I'm Both, not sure. Yeah, multiple, yeah, yeah not, not, not Warai as much, but Kinaraya, yeah, and Ilongo. So gosh, you know, this is very moving. Um, I, I am really kind of feeling a little bit... Uh, I had no idea. And um, I think this is, for me, um, just a manifestation yet again of um, and the Holy Spirit. And, and just wow. I mean, amazing. That's yeah. really incredible. I have I goosebumps like right have now. I have a part two. Yeah, I feel yeah. like this is possibly going to have to be a two-part series uh, in your focus. But wow, incredible. I do yeah. have goosebumps. This is incredible. Wow, amazing. Thank you for sharing that. And, you know, just as connected to this conversation, you know, the Bulletin Center, you know, and I, I'm guessing that one of your questions really is to a little bit about how we started. So maybe I'll kind of weave the story of our beginnings uh, by also talking about one of the things I'd like to launch for this year, but, you know, part of, you know, we know that uh, September is the 50th anniversary of martial law hmm. in the Philippines. And so actually, uh, and hopefully this can even be a potential point of collaboration for us, if you like. Absolutely. But I really wanted to launch mm -hmm. on September 21st, something else. I think a lot of people are going to do the work of remembering martial law. I really want to lift up and celebrate Filipino anti-martial law um, and resistance and activism. I mean, you know, focused on martial law, but also beyond. I think that yes. we have such nice. a rich history of activism and resistance, uh, whether it's around martial law and Filipinos are such lovers of democracy. It's mm -hmm. such a crucial part of who we are. We are lovers of justice. And, you know, we've been so much too in recent years part of the work in combating anti-Asian um, hate, as well as really lifting up Black Lives Matter and kind of interracial solidarity. So that's the campaign I really want to launch on September 21st. Mm -hmm. I was going to do a TikTok 
I don't know, I don't do TikTok or something. <laughs> Apparently there's a new craze around like a line dance. I'm about the line dances, so, you know, of <laughs> September. So it's like, do you remember the Nice. <laughs> but you know kind of like focusing on resistance mm-hmm. and resilience mm-hmm. and activism so mm-hmm. so the, the balloon front center yeah its story is an activism story i mean the long and short of it is that if you do research uh, in filipino studies you know how incredibly impossible it is you're often dealing with graduate programs where there are no faculty who do anything related to Filipino studies. And then faculty, because they don't do anything related to Filipino studies, who might dissuade you from doing Filipino studies. Mm-hmm. And then there's yep. just that. And then if you manage to, be, to do that work, then you become a faculty, you try to apply for research, and then you get rejection upon rejection upon rejection mm-hmm. by grant you know, givers all the time because there is no value placed on studying the Filipino, whether it's wow. the Filipino in America, the Filipino, the diaspora, Filipinos in the Philippines. You know, we all know this, right? It's constant. So basically, I, you know, I'd gotten fed up with just too many rejections, sure. gotten fed up with hearing my graduate students or people just flocking to me from across the university or outside mm-hmm. of Davis, really looking for support because they're not getting any. And so I used my activist sensibilities and look to you know <laughs> all of our ancestors to know how to create institutions out of nothing yes. so we basically started the Bolosan center with a dinner dance <laughs> 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 we organized oh my goodness this is amazing except it was you know basically for second second gen kind of my generation you know we all got dragged to those things i know i did (laughs) and this time we had hip-hop artists and you know other kind of folks you know spoken word really kind of you know my my generation has a little bit of money now and this is a culture you know we have a cultural philosophy that we can activate and so we did it and we you know and we we put on social media and we basically like, you know, we thought we had a really modest goal of just $10,000. That would be enough to hold a conference, you know, do yeah. some activities. Well, you know, between the fundraiser and our online kind of, you know, crowdsourcing, you know, crowdfunding campaign, we got like $35,000. Wow. Wow. And mm. then, oh my God. And so that, I mean, that just kept going, that momentum going. And, you know, the, the relationships we cultivated in, in organizing you know, that launch, we were able to activate in uh, 2019 um, for what was the first in many, many years, Filipino Advocacy Day in the state capitol. Because mm. you know we don't have that. It had been years, probably 20 years since Filipinos had kind of intentionally come together as Filipinos to sort of advance a kind of Filipino agenda at the state capitol in Sacramento. We used all that energy. We went to the Capitol to support issues relevant to the community, like, you know, um, labor rights for domestic workers and caregivers and, you know, protections for tenants, those sorts of things. Well, in those meetings, we happened to learn from former Assemblymember Rob Bonta, now Attorney General Rob Bonta, that there's mm-hmm. an opportunity for uh, groups like us to appeal directly to the legislature for direct state funding for the center. So California was then in a surplus. 
we gathered, you know, gathered together the community. We got a whole bunch of people, you know, signing, uh, you know, signing online petitions. We we had several delegations of people going to different assembly members' offices. We were given a one-time million-dollar state allocation from the state of California wow. in June 2019, which Amazing. basically funded three three years of Oregon uh, of work. And then, you know, uh, because of all the work that we've been doing in the community, especially with respect to cross-racial solidarity and um, stop the API hate work, the Hewlett Foundation uh, selected us out of, I think, one out of uh, just 20 organizations, maybe 22 in the state of California Mm -hmm. who did work in this arena. You know, we... You know, there are many, many other well-established organizations that didn't get it. But this year of funding, this academic year is funded by the Hewlett Foundation. And um, all of the community partners that we work with have also been successful in getting funding. So kind of, you know, when we think about our work uh, beyond the scope of just what the center holds financially, like we've been able to to seed so many um, projects throughout uh, with our community partners in the greater Sacramento region and even beyond so yeah movement being born from celebrations yes it's very much kind of like you know um how we do things i mean so much of what we do we talk a lot we've uh, mm-hmm. named this work that we do in Bolosan as a form of radical love um mm-hmm. i'm really trying to think about what does that mean to say radical love but i i do feel like it is about our, our, our very un, unconventional approach to building community mm-hmm. in ways that kind of really upend how we typically think the university ought to connect to the community mm-hmm. or even how kind of researchers, uh, the kind of stature perhaps that I have, might connect to students. So we really kind yeah. of up, you know, appending all of these conventional ideas and, um, and we, we put love at the center of our work, you know, our deep mm-hmm. love for our community that's how we move in the world. Yeah, that's so amazing to hear about the different ways you're using the language like upending in my head. It was redefining uh, what could it look like for us to, if Filipinos are in the center, like fundraisers would look like parties, you know? Um, And I know that that's, there's paradigms for that, but something that you were saying reminded me of a film that I saw recently that was um, created by a a friend of ours, Carl Cathedral, that's, um, you know, part connected to us. um, And he created a a documentary highlighting migrant workers uh, in Hong Kong and all the things that they're doing, the protests that they're doing. And um, in his videos, the protests all had line dancing yes. <laughs> and <so> recreating, <laughs> recreate or like, you know, modifying the lyrics to like Katy Perry songs, but like they're singing oh and they're gosh. dancing and it's all part of, yeah. of protest. So yes. um, if any of you all are interested in looking at that, like shout out to Carl, who are, who is our boy for sure. But the, the movie's called Migrant Women Rise. Um, but it just, for me, that, that just clicked you. together. I was like, yes, we, we line dance. We do this Amen. and this we is do. how we, we do life. We, we eat. This is how we do life. Yeah, um, and then and, one last and, thing on that bit is, sorry, is is that Jay actually used to be um, a DJ, a hip hop DJ. So I'm just going to put you on blast as I always do, because I think that yeah. that's such a fun piece of information. It's true. So oh, for your next fundraiser, I, I'm just saying, always, you got a guy. Okay. But I would always, you know, I always hung around like, you know, with the DJs and like help right. carry the, yes. the, rec- the, the records, if you yeah. know. But, you know, but no, uh, actually, it's funny because I 
I um, used to, during the anti-war uh, protests in the early 2000s, you know, I think I'd always aspired to be like a spoken word, you know, rapper mm-hmm. or whatever. <laughs> um, so I would, I would lead the chant actually with awesome. Kiwi, who people might know, who, you know, was connected with for those of you in, in Southern California, you know, connected to Bamboo, Pistol, uh, who sure. they were part of the group called uh, Native mm-hmm. Guns. And so yes. we would kind of yes. like, yeah, we would we would flip certain things to Filipinos made the anti-war protest the best. Everybody wanted to follow <laughs> us, you know, awesome. <laughs> because, you know, we're dancing and, and we brought joy. You know, part of it yes. was, yeah. I think for Filipinos, you recognize resistance you know, can be a joyful assertion of collective power, right? Yes. And, and that's exciting, right? To think that in the face of dictatorship or kind of, you know, that, that we we take great mm. joy in being together in community and that's sharing right. that space. Um, because oftentimes, you know, we, we're not, we don't think about kind of uh, collective action in those ways. Mm-hmm. You know, we might kind of mm-hmm. associate with anger or kind of militancy, but I think Filipinos have always had a very different approach. That's right. To you know, asserting themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so beautiful. I love that. In the face of injustice, corruption, difficult things, uh, we can bring joy, and that's that's welcome at the table too. That's that's part of the story. I I love that. Awesome. Also, too, just talk about random connections. You brought up bamboo, but <laughs> my my cousin or well, Fat Gums, who's one of the producers. Um, <laughs> Uh, do you know Eric? <laughs> he married um, my god sister, Venice. So just another random family <laughs> connection. Oh, are we <laughs> but all related? Yes, we, are. we all know each other somehow. That's right. <laughs> um, no, we're just super good at networks and communities yes. and knowing each other. I feel like that's like Kapwa right there. Like, yes, you know this is. person? Me too. So there's just something yes. about this feels very Filipino. Um, yeah, it's Kapwa, right? But so we are drawn together. I don't think it's accidental. I do think that there is Absolutely something not. about a deep sense of connectedness um, yeah. that draws us. So it's not, it's not surprising at all. It's not no, surprising no, not at all. Speaking about connectedness, I think I'm still, you know, sitting with the stories that you were sharing earlier about how your name is a created name. It means to be angry and about how your grandfather was doing all of his work and and how you are, your family, you are part of a legacy and how our names and the people from whom we come, our ancestors, are deeply connected, right? That same idea of being connected, but who our families inform who we are. Mm-hmm. Um, and not only that, but our last names can tell the stories of our families in a lot of ways, which is cool. Recently, as I've been, you know, diving into my own studies um, in psychology, I, I learned more about Babylons, like, right, this like ancient beside healers who, you know, to to water it down really quickly, it's both pastors and therapists essentially for their communities. And I think it's so funny. My my last name is is Bailan, like ba- well, Bailan is how I say it to most people, but most Filipinos are like, oh, Bailan, yeah. um, which is so close close sounding to Babylon. And so I think it it feels 
almost like fate in a way that I became a psychologist and a minister. Um, so it's just so cool to hear about how your name means so much to who you are and what you do. And you've already gave, given us such an amazing story, but I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how you did come to this iteration of yourself as a scholar activist. Um, like, how did you get to this point? Mm. Yeah, you know, um, it goes back to the to kind of anti-martial law activist, you know, I, mm. but not just that. I think um, I also, or I know that I've also, I was, significantly shaped also by sort of Asian American um, movement uh, activists, right? So if you think about the Asian American movement as originating in the late 1960s, um, in tandem with and in solidarity with uh, the rise of the Black Power Movement and the American Indian Movement and other movements of that time, I, I was mentored by people in the mm. Asian American movement. Mm. My mentor is Dr. Diane Fugino, who is um, a professor of Asian American Studies at UC Santa Barbara. And she, for me, really exemplified this bringing together of scholarship and activism or advocacy. Mm -hmm. So, and as much as her work, and I think, you know, she sees her work as a researcher, as a scholar, as a writer, as helping to advance social justice by throwing light on social justice, uh, an activist work. She was also simultaneously committed to advancing social justice work in her practice by volunteering and you know participating in different struggles. And the way that she brought that together for me was just, uh, I was just so inspired by that. And she served as an, a living example of what I could possibly do because I had such an interest in research mm -hmm you know, knew the power of picking up a book by people who look, who, written by people who look mm. like me, knew the power of what it meant to be in a classroom led by people who looked like me, and yet also yes. knew the power of kind of being kind of active in kind of social justice work. So being able to wed all these things that um, were so meaningful to me, and I could see as gifts that I had, I mean, I knew I had a gift that being able to do research, have a gift of being able to kind of mm -hmm. speak and convey knowledge, and also, mm -hmm. you know, have a gift for being able to like connect in community, that I felt like that was the way to, I could do it. And so, you know, I had Di Diane Fugino, Professor Fugino as this role model. And, and I, you know, when I moved to the Bay Area to pursue my doctorate at UC Berkeley, I was connecting to elders who had been active in the anti-martial law movement. Mm -hmm. You know, I had started in the late 19, 1990s at Berkeley, and um, they just served as a font of knowledge for me as well and encouraged me and others to really uh, do work in the community because, you know, at the time, and it's still true now, we didn't have sufficient institutions and organizations serving the most marginalized and vulnerable of our community. And that's sort of how I you know, managed to keep uh, a really strong foothold in the community, even as I was pursuing my doctorate. And so, you know, I, I think from the beginning, I'd always been doing the work side by side, you know, and actually really not sharing some of this and divulging this information to my dissertation committee and chair, mm -hmm. because much of the um, mm -hmm. advice, and this is still true, that, you know, dissertation committees will give like somebody like me is put it aside, 
focus on your dissertation, that's mm. going to be a distraction. And I didn't, I didn't do that. I, I thought that there's, I, I couldn't, I didn't want to be far from my community. And I, I feel like I'm now serving as a role model, as somebody who didn't put it aside and wait. And I'm thankful that I didn't wait. Was it easy? It was not, it was hard. But I do think that I can offer yet another model because what I see when I see my, my colleagues who kind of put aside their advocacy and just focus on the scholarly work, hmm. and when you do take that trajectory, what that means is for the six years or so that you're in a doctoral program, you're away from the community. And mm-hmm. then if you follow the academic track and take a tenure track job, that's yet another six years away from the community, which wow. puts you well over a decade really Mm -hmm. away from the community and outside of the rhythm of how, you know, kind of working on issues um, and even just the language of being able to to talk to ordinary people. And Mm -hmm. it becomes very hard to return after over a decade if you are kind of so steeped in the world of academia. And so I, I, um, I made sacrifices. It did mean that maybe in the academic world, I wasn't able to do certain things that in the academic, according to academic metrics might, you know, be more valuable. But I, I do feel like I've carved this path that is distinctive and that still allowed me to stay close to the community. Uh, that's what's most important to me. And it also why I'm also coming to a place in my life where I'm recognizing that it's my time now to even exit academia because I've kind of exhausted everything that I could from it and I want to devote myself more fully to being, you know, the people's professor, I guess. And now to really connecting, as I shared, um, to the land and gaining insight from a deeper and a more intimate relationship with, with the land. Wow. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. I, I know me and Jay have more questions and I'm going to pass it on to him in just a moment. But I just wanted to say that as a ac- person that found myself in academia unexpectedly, hearing from your story, that's that's a lesson I feel like I, I wish I had learned earlier. And so something that I want us to disseminate to our listeners um, who might be navigating spaces where they may be one or just one of a few Filipino people in, in that space is to um, advocate for yourself by finding community, finding those mentors that are out there and sticking to being connected. And that might, that could be a lifeline for you um, in those yeah. spaces. I feel like we could do a whole entire season based on that, but I just wanted to say thank you for sharing that. And quickly, if I can just make a plug, Eleanor, I mean, we do have an affiliate program for the Lofan Center for folks who are in the space of Filipino studies. And um, so mm-hmm. that is a way that we're helping to cultivate community. And there's also a journal that we have called ALON, a journal of kind of you know Filipino studies in the diaspora. But so just there are ways we've already built that in. So, you know, if I can just plug that Beautiful. for folks, because it's hard to find a community. And at least that's one entry point um, for other people. And it's very, very open. It's very interdisciplinary. The thing that critically holds people together is this commitment to Filipino studies and being identified as Filipino. Yeah. I want to echo what Eleanor said and how significant that is, because a lot of our listeners are studying either in psychology or in the fields of theology and ministry. And the same thing is true. Uh, I, I definitely feel at times like the, the kind of capitalistic pressure to produce more and more. But, you know, during my entire PhD program, I was and still am a pastor. 
And it enabled me to do a lot of other things like being on the ground with people, especially people who are suffering, which is where the work really matters the most, right? And yet I think if we keep drinking all the academic kind of Kool-Aid and the water yeah. at times, there's this like, I'm not publishing enough. I'm not at enough conferences. You know, if, you know, some of my friends who they're, they're not married, they don't have kids, they, they're not in a church, they're not in community. They're just like with books. I feel like, oh, it's easy to be jealous of them and all the papers that they're writing. And then looking back and, and then hearing, hearing from you, I feel really affirmed in this kind of commitment to community. I totally hear you and just typically say that, yes, I hear that. And I've gone through all of those things, you know, I feeling like I wasn't um, doing enough, wasn't producing enough. And even if I was producing, it wasn't in the, the right journals, whatever right journal mm -hmm. means or in the right spaces. There's definitely that kind of publisher parish, which is, you know, something that we can't fully control because those are requirements that come from the university itself. But we can't control exactly where and what voice we speak and, you know, but even rec you, you kind of have to, you know, recognize and accept that there will be things that you can see, you know, so mm -hmm. could I write, you know, a journal for a top rank sociology journal? Sure. If I devoted myself entirely only to that, but at the end of the mm -hmm. day, do I want to? But you recognize, though, that there are costs to that. There's, you know, at mm -hmm. some point in my career, I worried that that would cost me tenure, cost me certain kinds of promotion along the way. But those are risks that I was willing to take. And I had to, those are, I had to, you know, engage in a kind of calculus around weighing all that out. But yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, I think ultimately the path that I took is one that I'm happy with. And I feel like it gives me joy to hear the affirmations that you shared early at the top. Yeah. Of, of our conversation because I wrote, I do this because I wanted to create space for people in our community, people like you who share these commitments, you know, and that mm -hmm. I value far more than whether or not I got, you know, published in, you know, these top tier, whatever. <laughs> There's like all sorts wow. of ranking systems. I don't, I don't even, I yeah, don't even that's know, right. but you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, can I ask about that then? I think you mentioned your work first kind of under Dr. Diane Fugino and then now more alongside her. And I want to just name this for a lot of our listeners because I'm thinking back to the year 2020, which I know so much has happened since that crazy time. And yet part of the the, the burden or the gift of being in the trenches was to be in the midst of a lot of crises and the resurgence of anti-Asian racism and violence. And of course, the way that um, Asian American and Filipino American communities also had to process anti-Blackness and the ways within the church that theology and religion is very much a part of that. So I, I just wanna thank you and Dr. Fujina for the work that you've just put out and mm -hmm. how it really addresses what was at the time in 2020, this um, problematic narrative of Asian Americans and Filipino Americans as silent or as uninvolved in the work of social justice and activism. And I was just wondering if you could comment more about that because it seemed like, especially for those of us here in the Midwest where we're not as heavily populated by Asian American activists and uh, academics, you know, there was this this narrative and this 
model minority myth kind of extension percolating again in 2020 like oh we've been silent too long or you know we're we've been invisible too long and i would just love if you could say a little bit about how asian and filipino americans have been involved in the work for such a long time and why you th maybe there's a misperception or misunderstanding of our place in history sure uh, you know it's interesting because uh we started that project in 2019 mainly because 2019 2018 2019 marked 50 50 years of asian american studies mm, okay. as a field and of course, Asian American studies as a field is deeply connected to the Asian American movement. And so, you know, what Diane and I wanted to be able to do was to, one, really track the ways that the Asian American movement continues to shape and inform contemporary activism. This is often a way that people might kind of romanticize the 1960s and 1970s period as this mm -hmm. time when people came together across differences and, you know, really were willing to take great risks to fight for a better world and that, you know, might pe people may feel in this sense of, like, nostalgia and even a sense of loss that there isn't that kind of, we don't see that same level of engagement by people. And I guess for Diane mm -hmm. and I, it was just to actually reframe that, to say, no, that's not necessarily That's true. It's that the legacies of that moment continue to, you know, shape Asian American activism in new ways. The very existence of Asian American studies mm -hmm. programs, um, many organizations directly link their origins to that earlier uh, moment. So we wanted to trace the, the ways that um, the legacies of the Asian American movement continue to live on. And my you, the Asian American movement also was very vitally connected to the anti-martial law movement, right? especially with Filipinos involved in a whole period of time. So we wanted to track that intergenerationally. And, you know, the other was, you know, I think that Diana and I had already seen, right, even before uh, this latest iteration of anti-Asian hate, how uh, Asian American activism has been so sort of invisibilized in other kinds of struggles in the intervening years, right? Mm -hmm. So anyhow, I guess, you know, in many ways it was just timing. And none of us, yeah. neither of us could have ever anticipated that we were going to, you know, uh, be in the throes of a pandemic a few years after launching this project. Oh, actually, it was, wow. I guess, January 2018. I, I can't recall now that, I guess, my, anyhow. But in, at any rate, you know, I think the timing was just, I mean, we could never have anticipated that, right? Mm -hmm. So thankfully, we had been in conversation doing this work and that we were able to even come out with a book in a timely manner. And mind you, you know, we, we probably could have had the book come out in 2020, except for the fact that, as I may have shared, you know, my son Amato died in August of 2020 mm -hmm. while serving um, Indigenous communities in, in the Philippines. You know, he, again, felt called you know, to do this work, uh, specifically to learn from and to serve uh, Indigenous communities in the Philippines. Mm -hmm. He was working with faith-based groups at the time in response to several typhoons that had hit Mindoro. And mm -hmm. um, due to the lockdown conditions, basically could not seek uh, medical help. As, you, as everybody remembers, you know, we're all kind of in lockdown. And 
you know, the previous administration in the Philippines had really imposed kind of martial law-like conditions on the population, for better or for worse. But that did mean that he was prevented from, or he had, you know, from, from seeking medical attention for what basically was food poisoning. And um, he died uh, of septic shock in August. So, you know, um, that's why the epilogue of the book is also devoted to him, because he himself has a story to tell, and I think he offers a lot of inspiration to young people who hear about his story as a new, yeah. and a new, you know, um, version of, or you know, he, he for the Gen Zers, uh, as somebody who mm-hmm. is biracial, second, you know, third gen at this point, and also you know who mm-hmm. located his work in multiple places and in connection to various parts of his identity. So yeah. yeah. Um, I just want to name the book for our listeners to make sure that they pick up a copy, Contemporary Asian American Activism, Building Movements for Liberation, and that's edited by Drs. Diane Fugino and, of course, our very special guest today. I also want to name the my just love for your calling on certain themes like intergenerationality. Uh, you know, the faith community operates very similarly, but often we don't do a good job of naming and valuing these things like uh, self-collective and self-love and care. And I really just think that those are such wonderful lessons, in the book, even though I know that you've been really clear, this is not a manual on, on organizing, but these are lessons learned that we get to inherit as part of the legacy from those who've gone before. Um, Eleanor, I think is going to ask uh, another question for the sake of time, although I wish I only got through about four out of my million questions, but go ahead, Eleanor. (laughs) Yes, thank you so much. But I think the question that we'll land on here is, we are wondering, what are your hopes for the School of Liberating Education? And and how can uh, we learn more about that and, and support that work? Yeah, no, thank you for the question. Lots of things happened in 2020, of course, for me. And, you know, uh, my, the loss of my son, along with everything that was happening on the planet, has really made me take pause to do some really vital um, work of healing. And um, among the things that I decided was that, you know, I no longer wanted to have the university sort of play mediator to my being able to provide access, vital uh, you know, access to the kinds of knowledges that I think our community really deserves. Wow. And so, you know, because of the birth of new platforms, you know, there's so many new online learning platforms that are out there now, all develop, developed, uh, you know, um, or um, enhanced during the pandemic. And so I came to this realization that I don't need to teach from the university to offer Asian American studies, Filipino studies, ethnic studies that I could use this online platform and push it out directly to those in our community who need mm. it. And the vision it. here mm. is because I'm not, it's not a profit-driven enterprise, it's a social enterprise. The vision is that, and, and that it, along with our farm, it's kind of brought a part of a broader social enterprise meant to you know, share knowledge. And now, of course, we're not just offering courses online, the vision is that we would also offer courses for the school in workshop and retreat form here at the farm. Mm. So we could also introduce land-based knowledges as, and awesome. really center indigenous That's knowledges cool. as well. But, you know, the vision is that, you know, whatever revenue we generate, 
will be used to you know, pay for basic expenses, but surplus will be reinvested into the Amado Kaya Foundation, which I established in my son's name, and other um, mm. nonprofit organizations that we feel aligned with because, you know, so many of uh, the nonprofit organizations that serve our communities are beholden to foundations whose priorities mm-hmm. change with the wind. We are lucky that they're now by, uh, prioritizing Asian American communities, but we know that that priority will like fade in time as the new issues emerge. And so we're trying to create and kind of uh, experiment with a model of kind of resource uh, regeneration that would allow us to simultaneously extend knowledge to our community while also generating the revenues that we can reinvest back and redistribute back mm. to other members of our community. So, yeah, I, you know, I'm just really, you know, in tragedy, so many other kind of opportunities, you know, arise if we look for them and we think that that was the one. And so, yeah, you know, we um, have launched a couple of courses through the School for Liberating Education, which is offered on the Thinkific platform. And people can find that information on my website, um, drrobinrodriguez.com. And, you know, this is my final year at UC Davis, retiring officially July 1st, 2023. We're in the process of transitioning different pieces of Bulosan Center. Bulosan will not disappear. What it will do is it's going to bloom and grow in new different forms, including in the School Mm. for Liberating Education and even here on this farm. I'm kind of in this kind of transition period where I've kind of laid out some things on the School for Liberating Education that will possibly have to take a little bit of a pause while I finish up this year. Mm-hmm. But, you know, by July 1st, we'll have a whole you know, menu of courses, both online and at the farm. Hopefully we will be, you know, you know reaping <laughs> more, uh, you know, literally fruits and vegetables from the land. Uh, Amen. Hearing it right now. <laughs> yes. And um, yeah, you know, I just look forward to being able to connect directly with our community. One other time, if you wanted to, I can share the story of how God, Atala, the creator, our ancestors uh, conspired. I really truly believe in setting me on this path. There's been a number of things that have happened over the last um, few years that are just a testament to how, you know, loved we are. And I'd love to share that story as well. And I I don't think it was an accident that somehow I landed on this particular podcast with you both, uh, with the kind of connections yeah. we already clearly share. And I'm just, I just feel so humbled and grateful that we've been brought together. In this hmm. Amen. Yeah. Something that kept coming up in my mind as you were sharing was the phrase like for such a time as this and just all the work that you were doing and even 2019 and the crucible of 2020 and beyond that happened, you were already doing that work and feel like entering into that space with, with work that you were already doing. So I just feel like that's your story is like, you you know, you're here in these spaces in your past and in the future uh, for such a time as that, right? Whenever, whenever it is that you're entering. So I just, yeah. I hope that you feel blessed by that and also feel like this was such a good question to end on as well, because I feel like it brings us back to that first question or first conversation we were having about upending things and just doing things our way and you are upending the educational system. So I just wanted to (laughs) just reflect that, but yeah, Jay, if you had any thoughts. 
uh, once again, we are so grateful for you, your work, the way the work is a ministry and a contribution mm -hmm. to the bettering of people's lives in our community and beyond. So thank you. And let's continue to be in touch. Um, yes, yes. I wish you yes, many yes. blessings in, in this next thank season. You. Thank you. And Eleanor, you know, I, I just happened to be reading, of course, the Babylon reader. <laughs> anyway, we'll have it. We'll have to circle back to that because I wanted to host a little reading group for that as an aside um, for Kenai to feel like they need to just process that together. So again, you know, these are not uncanny, but also maybe not so uncanny connection. Thank you. And again, you. God bless you. Oh, thank you so much. I just, I am so moved by this. I really hope that, um, I'm sorry. I just, it's okay. Yeah. 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 This is just so beautiful. I can't believe these connections. <laughs> hmm. um, I feel like every day God is always gifting me with these beautiful, um, beloved community every day. And I'm um, hmm. so overwhelmed yeah. by it sometimes. And it's just thank you so much that you called and moved. Yes, Bob. Oh, my um. God. Anyway, I'm just very, very moved by it. And so, oh, it's so beautiful. I, I can't wait. Gosh, Jay, we have to talk about the Magalit legacy. And, you know, Uncle yes. you know, we never really, I never got a chance to get very close to them, you know, because they're in Chicago and always just sort of watch and admire from afar. So as a separate thing, I'd love to just talk about intergenerationality and hearing how that kind of connection uh, you know, has shaped you. I feel like I'm going to have to turn around and interview you now <laughs> for the <laughs> Archive. <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Centering, the Asian American Christian Podcast. This episode was produced by Jason Chu and edited by Alexander Catedral with music by Mark Redito. Please join us again next week or browse our archives on your favorite podcast directory. And above all else, we want to remind you that God embraces all of who you are. Thank you.